Good to have you here. And uh, welcome to Palm Sunday. You know, about a week before Jesus was uh, crucified and rose from the dead, he entered into the city of Jerusalem on a colt and on a young colt that had never been ridden before. And as he entered, people were so excited and, and, and so ecstatic um, that, that really kind of as an act of honor, they took their cloaks and they laid them on the ground for the colt to walk on. And some people cut down branches and then laid those on the path as well for this, this colt to walk on. And then from that is where we get our current tradition of Palm Sunday. Some people were excited because they just love Jesus a lot. Some people were excited because they thought that uh, Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom here on earth. And uh, that didn't happen. I mean, he's coming again and he will set up a new kingdom. Um, but that first time, Jesus set up his church and he opened up salvation to, to any who would believe in him. And so between his first coming and his second coming, we as a church spread the message of Jesus. Uh, in scripture, Palm Sunday is referred to as triumphal entry. Uh, if you do, you know, if you were to, to look for a Palm Sunday in scripture, you're, you're not going to find one. But what's interesting is that that last week of Jesus is so significant that out of all the, all the, the gospels, about 40% of what we have is dedicated on that last Sunday. Meaning that kind of historically between Palm Sunday when he entered and then his upcoming crucifixion and then his resurrection on Easter, that one week gets 40% of our, our written material. And so it's pretty significant. And uh, Palm Sunday is just a fun Sunday for us. We get to do stuff like this with the kids and, and we get to remember uh, just that parade-like atmosphere of when Jesus entered into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Um, a few announcements and then we're going to have some, some musical worship. A number of things happening this week. Uh, Wednesday night, um, we have only three of those left. Um, but we are, um, this Wednesday, we're having a, a kind of a special deal around 7 o'clock. There's a webinar designed for people kind of in the 45 to, to 70 ish. Um, and it's, it's going to be put on by an Everance financial advisor talking about long term care insurance. And uh, we'll have the location uh, for that. But that is Wednesday night at 7 on Dr. Mitchell. On Thursday evening, we're doing a Monday Thursday service. You're all invited. It's going to be in the Family Center. We're going to start at 6.30. There will be a real-life meal, and we're just going to talk through the Last Supper and, and a little bit of what that would be. Friday, uh, there's a hymn thing at Heritage Park. Uh, Sunday morning on Easter, the Christian Resource Center is hosting a sunrise service out of their facility at 7 a.m. And also on Sunday morning, uh, we're going to have coffee and some treats starting at 9. We, a number of us this morning went out and handed out about 50 cookie platters to, to people all around town, inviting people to Easter. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we might have some visitors. So, um, But Sunday morning, we'll, we'll have coffee and treats starting at 9. Sunday school is as normal, 9.30. And then, of course, the, the church service uh, at 7 o'clock. So there are some other announcements in your bulletin on backpack programs, looking for some supplies. MCC has some needs, so I would ask that you would uh, uh, read those for, for some more information. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we worship you. And Lord, uh, we remember uh, roughly 2,000 years ago when you entered into Jerusalem. And uh, just the excitement uh, that, that spread throughout an entire city because of that moment. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we worship you in music, that we would have some of that same excitement and exhilaration in honoring who you are. We love
benediction and services. I'd like to have a prayer time. Let me pray for our Portland Jewish and our Canadian uh, Elk Creekers that have a uh, one of the vows in place that uh, city and nation will receive. And we can now go and with you last week about Melinda Boynton and that traumatic stroke. She's still in Briarbrush and I believe you have been prayerful and and really thought of what they could have done to very painful uh, diagnosis. And so that went well. Uh, Jennifer Dietrich is uh, Hamilton Evangelism Center with a couple of other students. She's also still there. Uh, Kenton Seabrin Miller and Jamie are are hosting a neighborhood brunch and, and opportunities to, to talk about Jesus with the community. Uh, Jason and Nicole Fearing have some new people joining them on Youth Streetball, which is pretty fantastic, and so they're uh, excited to share for that and get, to get all the details with that. And then Paul and Tara Roberts, who are serving as parents, I'd like to pray for their marriage and, and other family relationships. Let's have a word of prayer together.
book of John, there's seven times where Jesus says, I am, and then he includes some kind of analogy to help us understand who he is. And the one that we're on today is in John 10, uh, specifically verses uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And Jesus says, I am the door. And uh, it's kind of, you know, as I, and it's, you know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he, he, he continues to assert this claim about him being the only way of salvation. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, this week as I was researching, you know, you're, you know, you're looking for ideas and researching and looking up stuff and reading commentaries and Googling this and that and whatnot. And I, I found myself on YouTube watching debates between Christians and atheists. And uh, it was kind of interesting. Most of the videos that I saw uh, appeared to be on some kind of college campus. And there was uh, like an individual, it looked like perhaps like a, a pastor, a preacher was maybe doing a, an outreach on this college campus. And, and then there would be a, usually a student who's debating with them or just raising questions. And it was, it was really fascinating to watch. And um, some were very good debaters. Some were, were not so much. And, uh, you know, some were debating things that I would not consider consequential, but whatever, they were going down that path. Uh, some were just brilliant. I mean, both sides were throwing out terms and concepts that I had a hard time following, let alone, you know, like I couldn't have been in the middle, like, thinking up that stuff while they were going. I mean, they were, it, it was just real great to watch. And um, it was interesting. You could, you could tell that some were legitimate truth seekers which was fantastic, and I mean, that is, that is worth a commendation, right? I mean, because really aren't we all just truth seekers, right? I mean, that's, that, that's a huge thing. What we understand truth to be then influences our worldview, and then our worldview then influences how we live our life, right? And so at, at the heart of it, I, I mean, I, I do think we are all truth seekers, and, and so some were very much like that, which was, which was great. Some were very obviously just mad. They were just mad at Christianity or Jesus or something, but they were just mad, and they weren't really interested in, like, logical discussions. They were just, they had an agenda, and they were mad. And uh, Jesus dealt with a lot of these people. Paul dealt with these people. We, I mean, Paul includes those kinds of writings as, as well. Uh, we have a, a, a dear friend of ours who's just visiting um, here a, a few days ago, and, and it was interesting to, to talk with her, and, and she has a couple people in her life who, who are good friends and very smart, but at the same time are pretty antagonistic towards Christianity. And so, you know, she would tell us these stories, and, and you know, at first you're thinking, it's like, well, I mean, like, like what's the argument? Or it sounds like, what are they saying? Or, you know, it sounds like, what's their, their logical point of view that, that they're coming with this? And, and, you know, and so we would kind of discuss that for a while, but it was interesting because further on, on in the conversation, come to find out that, that this couple, that are both pretty antagonistic towards um, Christianity, both, both brilliant people in their brilliant jobs, the one gal, her parents are missionaries in a foreign country. And for him, he had been uh, uh, kind of drawn into a, what he described as a cult situation that was described as Christianity. And he doesn't describe leaving it. He describes escaping it. And so you hear those stories and you go, okay, like this is not, this is not a logical debate. Part of their tension with Christianity really comes back to broken relationships 
painful past, strained family relations. I mean, these are the things that are really driving kind of their, their issue with it. But, you know, Jesus makes bold statements, which are not. I mean, Jesus continues to assert that he is God, uh, that he can forgive sins, that he is the only means of salvation, that we should follow him completely. Uh, and in this particular area, he says that he is, he is the door of salvation and the only entrance. And frankly, you know, that can come across as pretty arrogant and, and in many ways almost condescending towards any other perspective when you start kind of using strong language like only and ever and this is, you know, your only option. I want to read to you parts of chapter 10 just kind of to, to give us the, the setting here. Um, and as we go through this, I'm going to start in chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus is going to give the illustration in the first five verses. But in verse 6, you're going to see that they're really not tracking with what he just said. Let me read to you this piece. This is Jesus talking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out on his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6, they're not quite tracking. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now in verse 7, all the way really to verse like 21, Jesus then reworks the whole thing. And we only look at the first verse, uh, first section. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In verse 11, he goes on and, and, and builds another illustration talking about how he's the good shepherd, but uh, that's another week. Today we're only looking at at this idea that, that Jesus is the door. A little bit of history on sheep gates. This is interesting. There's two different kinds of sheep pens or, or sheep gates that they had back in the day. One was located in the town or, or in the village. And actually multiple uh, shepherds, multiple, you know, they would all bring their sheep. They would all kind of usher them into this pen area. And then there was a, a, a porter or, or like a gatekeeper who watched the gate for all the sheep at night. And so the, the shepherd could bring in his sheep, they'd close the door, they, they've got someone watching over it, so he can go, like, do some laundry, visit the girlfriend, maybe grab some supper, whatnot. He can take a little bit of a break. So that was one kind. The other kind, and then what was interesting then is when it was time to leave in the morning, they would all respond to his voice. So he just had to stand in front of this mass of sheep and talk or whistle or whatever he would do, and then his sheep would separate from the herd and follow him back out into the countryside, which is pretty remarkable, right? Because, I mean, that's only given six of them, and that's enough for 200 sheep. And um, the 
other kind was that was out in the country, and this is far more rustic, and they would basically just use rocks and just kind of build up a pen, and there was no door or anything, so at nighttime, he would just, they, they, he would bring the sheep, and he would usher them into this pen area, but because there was no door, he would literally sleep across the doorway and, and, and become the door, and that way no sheep were going to really get out, and no wolves or things would enter, and he just, that's where he slept at night to protect them. But in this section, Jesus is saying that he is the door, that, that he is the entry point. Uh, he is the means by, by which we, we, we enter. He makes a similar claim uh, later on. He just words it differently. But he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the entry point. And because of this, Christianity or Christians are sometimes uh, labeled as, as narrow-minded or arrogant because because we have this viewpoint that there is only one way to heaven, and that way is Jesus Christ. And to be fair, yes, that can come across as pretty arrogant, as let's just name it, uh, to say, you know, there's only one truth. I have that truth. In some cases, you don't have that truth. I get to go to heaven. Unless you take that one truth, you don't. That, that can come across pretty harsh and, and pretty arrogant. But let me ask you this. Let's say you're in a restaurant. You have a chance fry. Grandpa gets a, a bad bite of roast beef. Starts choking, blocks out the windpipe. Grandma's freaking out. Grandma's crying. Grandpa can't breathe. Is it arrogant for you to say, there are no other lifeboats that are coming your way. 
people find the claims of Jesus to be a too, too much, um, to, to, to say that he is Savior of the world. But, but they like some of the things he said, and so they say, well, you know, we're really not buying into the Savior of the world thing, but he had some pretty good advice on just kind of how to live life. So, so and, and, and they'll use different terms, but basically it comes back to that he was kind of this good moral teacher that had some good stuff that, that we can apply, but this whole concept of Savior is too much, so we're just going to going to kind of edit that out. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an excellent book called Mere Christianity. Similar book. I, I highly recommend it. But he, he really kind of goes after this concept of, um, of was Jesus just a, a good moral teacher, that he had lots of good things to say, uh, lots of good concepts about loving people, about doing life together, but, but he wasn't actually God. It was just he was basically a nice guy whose main message was, well, you know, just love people and do nice and and try to be successful and that sort of thing multiple times in scripture uh, jesus claims to be god or or lord Um, he claims to have authority to forgive sins he claims to have all these existence he claims to come back and judge the world at the end of time he claims this very exclusive relationship with god he claims to have said i am the son of god and um, and if we actually made these claims then we really only have three options on what to do with the jesus The first is that Jesus was not God, that he did not have a good connection with God, um, that that he is not the only opportunity of salvation, but that that he knew he wasn't those things. He just made it all up. So if he was clear-headed and he knew these things were untrue, then really the man is a liar, A, a pretty prolific liar. But the problem is that if he's a prolific liar, he's a horrible good moral teacher. So you really can't say the guy was a prolific liar, but I just I want to build my life around what he said. It doesn't work. He's a liar. The second option is that Jesus was not those things, that he is not the son of God. He is not the path of salvation. He is not God's son, but he really thought he was. And then it was just a little bit too easy. Actually, we'd go with probably a lot bigger option, really. I mean, if I came to you and I said, look. I am an alien from outer space, and I just said that a whole lot, and then I said, I have good lessons from my time in outer space that you should build your life around, right? Maybe not such a good idea, right? You probably should look for exit at, I'm an alien here to teach you how to live. If that is the case, if Jesus was convinced that he was the son of God, but he absolutely wasn't, then the man is a lunatic. And in which case, if he's a lunatic, he's a horrible moral teacher because you should not build your life around someone who's so clearly like crazy. The third option is that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, that he claimed that Jesus was our salvation, that he claimed to be the son of God. But all those statements were true. Absolutely true. Jesus was clear headed. He was correct about all of those. And if this is the case, then Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus is Lord can't relegate him to good moral teaching because of the statements that jesus makes you really have to go extreme in how you handle him you either have to say he was clear-headed he was true it was all true he is lord the man is a wingnut we follow none of that this middle ambiguous ground of good moral teacher where i like some of it but not all of it that option is not available to us 
because liars and lunatics don't make good moral teachers. And you really can't, if Jesus is legitimately Lord, you can't really go kind of half and half. There are two words in the English language that really don't blend. Just by, by nature, they are, they are exclusive, and that is no Lord. Because if you're saying no, then who's no? Or at least you're not treating it right. After calling himself the door, I'm the only means of salvation, Jesus then contrasts himself to the enemy, or, or I believe Satan. In verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10, and the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5 8 says a similar thing. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Many of you are aware of, of the atrocities that ISIS has committed in Iraq. Their victims are children, women, and children. Christians, really any, any person in any faith that doesn't align methods involve acids, fire, execution, burning alive, crucifixion, drowning, beheading, often public, sometimes they videotape it themselves and then post it online. And, and I'm avoiding details because we have young viewers, but you know, if you've been watching the news, you're aware of it, and I wouldn't lead you there. picture something that over there that doesn't really affect us here but what we must remember is that the same spiritual enemy is trying to fire us back with that same it takes that same level of fear and violence and savagery to understand that the spiritual forces that I believe are, are behind me are present here as well that the enemy that Satan and his kingdom physically then they will seek to do it spiritually emotionally or relationally or physically or farther from God you have an enemy here who approaches you with the same venom as what happened over there do you understand this spiritually when your life takes a, takes a hit the enemy giggles and shakes when, when a marriage falls apart then you laugh is ruined by drugs and alcohol or illness or sin, you smile, go laugh, go, go congratulate yourself, go high five, whatever. When someone in the depths of despair commits suicide, the enemy rejoices. That is what it means to have an enemy that loves to steal and kill and destroy. And we have brothers and, and sisters in Christ where that kind of violence is a physical reality and, and you could probably be finding some proactive ways to help but do not forget that the spiritual forces behind that that's our spiritual reality as well too verse is not just kind of some utopia 
devoid of spiritual realities or too kind-hearted people have done something good. But this is a battlefield where Satan still has power, and we really, really, really hate him. That is your environment. That is your world in which you live. And that is the margin of a peace we love to be at. Don't dare say that to God. And I contrast that with Jesus, who says, if these ten things are true and stand this joy, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So many great verses like that of God in our faith as well. Starting at the very beginning, Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living thing. Job, the spirit of God has made him and the breath of the Almighty gives life. John, the book we're in, very beginning, in him was life and that life was the light of men. Psalm, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand there is pleasure forever. Again in Psalm, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. God the Father gives life to earth and all that is in it. He is the one who puts breath into our lungs. And Jesus is the one who gives spiritual life to man who will not be judged. I am fascinated by this word abundance. What we see in the word abundance here. That it wasn't kind of, you know, basic or, you know, just kind of enough to get you by or just kind of partial. But it was life talked about this last week and it's so good I, I, I just want to share it again with us again is just that life in Christ is the death of boredom that anyone can enjoy common graces like good food or vacations pleasure but that the Christian experiences those so much deeper because there's the Christian experiences those that actually have the power to move us into a place of worship because our minds are drawn to the goodness of God who created and provided those things and who would bless us with those pleasures. Life in Christ is the death of boredom. Our God gives life and gives it abundantly. If you look at something from the wrong perspective, you will get a wrong understanding of what that thing is. And sometimes if you just shift your position a little bit to the left, a, a little bit to the right, and maybe hold it differently, maybe move it into better light, then you will see that object for what it truly is. People were misconstrued. Jesus is referred to as being the door or being the only means of salvation. People were misconstrued that as arrogant or elitist or not believing Jesus. That it makes a lot of sense that if God is truly God, that we would ask him the best way to get to him and that he would tell us the best path. It makes a lot of sense that we would ask God for directions to his house. If you wanted to come to my house, I would tell you where I lived and how to get there. It would be foolish of you for you to ask someone who has never been to Henderson and has no street map of Henderson on how to get to my place. You will wander our streets lost for a really long time. I mean, eventually you'll find a little small town, but a long time. God sent us the roadmap in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not being arrogant. He wasn't attempting to be nice. He was lovingly telling us, I'm the only way to find me. 
covered with clean cereal for lunch, and the door became all who came to play at Jimmy's and Robert's were seeking out his help. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came to bring them life and have it more abundantly. Heavenly Father, Thank you. 